Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 660. We have advanced pretty far here in the last four years and just wanted to thank you for continuing to listen and join us and spread the word to your friends and neighbors about the Agents of Innovation podcast. We know you're subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts and just want to say a big thank you. Uh, Today we're going to have an excellent, excellent uh, guest, George C. That last name is pronounced C, but it's spelled S-E-A-Y. And we're going to hear from George. He is the co-founder and chairman of Annandale Capital. Uh, He is a lifelong entrepreneur and businessman. He's also involved in many different philanthropic efforts. Um, And just a a great man. I I had a chance to sit down with him when I was in Dallas. And we had a fantastic conversation, which you're going to hear in just a few minutes. Also, at the end of this episode, we're going to hear a song by our friend Matthew Fowler. Uh, Matthew, as you know, is a local to Orlando musician, although he's traveling all about. I can't keep up with him. He was in Japan recently. He's put out some music videos and um, really some cool stuff. But we're going to listen to one of his songs called Alive. I really love it. Very, uh, you know, he's very folksy, bluesy. Uh, Just uh, really hope you enjoy that at the end of this episode. And I hope you check out more of his music. That's Matthew Fowler at the end of this episode. So uh, for now, um, be sure you're subscribed, of course, and Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And, of course, everything can be found at agentsofinnovation.org. We write a little uh, article about each episode, so you'll find one there on George C. and all the guests that came before him. So thank you. Sit, Sit back. Hold tight. We're going to Texas, baby. Well, I want to welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, George C. Uh, George is the founder and chairman of Annandale Capital. He's also involved in so many things here. We're sitting down here at his office in Dallas, Texas. Uh, He is the grandson of a former Texas governor, Bill Clements. uh, And George also serves on numerous boards, uh, including currently being the chairman of the Texas-Israel Chamber of Commerce, Uh, So we're going to talk to him about some of these things. Uh, But, George, uh, first, uh, let me ask you a little bit about uh, your grandfather, Bill Clements, and, uh, you know, being a former uh, governor of Texas. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the influence he had on you and and, um, what's important to you about Texas. Well, thanks for having me on, Francisco, first of all, and and that's a fun topic to talk about. Uh, My grandfather's first wife, my grandmother, her family arrived in Texas in 1819, which makes me seventh generation and makes my kids eighth generation. So uh, unless unless you are were a Spanish land grant recipient from the crown, (laughs) it's hard to go back further than we do in Texas. And we've got a great legacy there and great history there. And it's been really fun to be a, a recipient of that as a as a descendant. But if someone got here in 1819, basically they were broke needing a fresh start, running from the law, or all of the above, because nobody came to Texas in 1819. There was no air conditioning. There were lots of hostile Native Americans, and the weather was terrible. So um, my grandfather was a – he's got a great all-American 
quintessential Texas story. It's kind of one of those Texas stories where it, it's it's better than fiction because it's actually true and it actually happened. And he was an all-American kid growing up. He was president of his class in high school. He was an all-state football player at 160 pounds. And he was favorite student at Holland Park High School here in Dallas. And he had a full scholarship to play football at, at Southern Methodist University or SMU here in Dallas. And a week after graduation, his parents told him they were absolutely broke and he had to go to work. So he to, got on a bus and went down to Sinton, Texas, just south of Corpus Christi in the middle of the the, uh, the tidelands on the coast that are flat, boring, and dull, and was a roughneck at age 17. So he started life uh, as an adult at 17. There was no lollygagging around, six-year program in college. It was get to work and support your family. Wow. And after a whole lot of iterations, including 14 moves in 12 years, when he was beginning his career, he started his own firm called Southeastern Drilling Company, or SEDCO, in 1947 uh, with completely borrowed money and two used drilling rigs. And over the next 40 years, he and his friends and his son and his colleagues proceeded to grow the largest uh, drilling company in the whole world, which they sold to Schlumberger in 1984. But the political side of that kind of came out of him serving as the either acting or deputy secretary of defense in Washington from 1973 to 1977. He was recruited by Nixon to serve, and Nixon said, what do you, what do you want to do, Bill? And he said, I want to be deputy secretary of defense. I don't want to be secretary because the deputy actually runs the building and mm. runs the defense department. He, and he said, I want to report directly to you, not to the secretary, and I want to pick every assistant or undersecretary underneath me. I want to choose every single person in those jobs. And Nixon said, agreed. And my grandfather had the gumption to tell the president, I'd like that in writing, please. <laughs> Showing he really understood Washington and what a dirty dealing place it is. So he he and David Packard, who's one of the co-founders of Hewlett Packard, were kind of viewed as the two most effective managers of the Pentagon ever. So he got a lot of renown from that, and he had a, a groundswell of people asking him to run for governor. And he'd never run for anything. He was a businessman. Um, since the Republicans have taken over here in Texas, we've seen a, a swarm of career politicians who just run for office after office after office. And my grandfather, I think, would be just shocked and horrified that his success led to that because he was not a career politician. He wasn't even a politician. He was a drilling contractor. And he had done so well, he got asked to run, and he uh, got convinced to do it. And he was really the first Republican governor ever. There was another Republican who won in 1870 during Reconstruction, but anyone associated with the Confederacy was not allowed to vote during Reconstruction. Oh, so you basically have 80% of the voting population unable to vote. So those were really not very legitimate uh, elections. So he was really the first Republican to ever win the governorship, which really controls Ooh. all statewide politics. And he started the race down 52% to the Democratic Attorney General nominee, and he roared to victory by, by a huge margin of 16,000 votes wow. <laughs> among about 5 million casts. So he squeaked into there, and he lost his bid for a second term and then won his, his uh, third time around. So he was the longest-serving governor at the time. Uh, he went back to private life, which he was very eager to do. But he was a character and an unbelievable talent and the strongest, wisest, most formidable person I've been around in my life, including several presidents I've met and secretaries of state and everything else. He was a really capable guy. So 
was a lot of fun to follow behind him and listen a lot and learn. Did you get opportunities to work with him or for him during any of that time when you were young? I did not until um, I was 19. Um, my grandparents got divorced when I was about seven, and so I didn't really know him growing up. But my freshman year at the University of Texas, my mother uh, and he talked, and, and my mother said, you know, George is interested in this kind of stuff. I think y'all would have a lot of fun if he came and worked for you. And my grandfather said, sure. So uh, I ended up starting out in their campaign office and in short order, I was his travel aide at age 19. So I wow. went all over the state of Texas with him on his last campaign and we ate a lot of Mexican food and barbecue and met a lot of wonderful people. And as a fifth generation partisan Dallas person, uh, to my horror, I found out I liked the rest of the state even better than I like Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, yeah, when you say you traveled around Texas, I mean, for most people traveling around their state might, might sound big enough, but Texas is bigger than most countries. It is. Uh, it's three times the size of England, for instance. It's about the size of France or Spain. Uh, from the top of the Panhandle down to the Brownsville in the Valley is over 800 miles. From El Paso to Texarkana in East Texas is over 800 miles. So it's a, it's a vast place. And you realize the grandeur of that when uh, you get to see different places. I remember the first time I flew into Alpine with him, which is in far west Texas near Big Bend, and it was July, and in July in Dallas, it's it's right next to hell. It's over 100 <laughs> degrees almost every day, and you fly into Alpine, and it's 65 degrees in the middle of the day. Wow. Because you're at 4,000 feet, and it's a much cooler climate. I, I didn't even know there was 4,000 feet elevation in Texas until now. <laughs> there's actually a peak called Guadalupe Peak in far west Texas that's over 9,000 feet. Wow. So Texas is a very diverse place. Yeah, for sure. Well, in, in – uh, in Florida, where I'm from, uh, I think maybe you ha might have like a 40-foot elevation somewhere. Flat as a board. <laughs> it really is. Um, well, uh, George, I noted that um, when you were young, uh, you were accepted to uh, Princeton and Stanford for college, but you chose to go to UT Austin for both your undergrad and your MBA, and you also stayed in Dallas for Southern Methodist University for law school. So tell me, um, why did you uh, stay in Texas opposed to going to some of what some might call elite schools in in like Princeton and, uh, and Stanford. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget the Harvard football coach calling me and trying to recruit me to go to Harvard. And I, I was just trying to be respectful and polite and said, you know, sir, I know Harvard's a fabulous institution, but it's about fifth on my list of schools. And I just really don't want to waste your time. And I meant it respectfully. So I didn't waste his time. And he was offended by that and proceeded <laughs> to give me a lecture of what a fool I was to not even consider Harvard. And uh, it's fun. I joke that I should write a book about how not to pick a college because <laughs> I was 17 and I was picking colleges more by um, the football opportunities to play football and the uh, dating opportunities. And uh, some of the more elite institutions didn't look so hot on, e on either. No offense <laughs> to, in to those institutions, but um, the University of Texas uh, draws some some of the most beautiful young ladies in the world, and they had a great football program. And at that age, all I really wanted to do was play football. And when I went to Princeton, the weight room was half the size of my high school weight room, and I just went, "This this isn't going to work." And I, I, you can look back at that and laugh, but at the same time, uh, I, I graduated University of Texas for better or for worse, summa cum laude. I got a great education, and I'm a Texan. I love being in Texas, and. I think it would have been really nice to have Princeton, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, whatever, on your resume. But I think I would have had a pretty poor four-year experience. And for any young people listening to your podcast out there right now, I would say, sure, go to a great school, work really hard, and, and qualify to go to a great school. 
But go to a school that you're going to be you're going to be joyful and content and happy at. Don't pick a school based on whether it's one rank arbitrary ranking ahead of another school. Make right. make sure you go where you're going to thrive. And I, I'm I'm not sure I would have thrived at Stanford or Princeton, and I did thrive at the University of Texas. Well, that's solid advice. And uh, did you so did you play football for UT? I played for a very short time in college, and my knees. Uh, gave out and I moved on to other things. So yeah, it's a little course. ironic. Yeah, no, that is. Uh, well, um, I know being in Texas, depending on where you're at in Texas, uh, being a Longhorn is a pretty big deal. So it's a great thing. Um, so then you you came uh, and you went to law school at SMU. I did. And uh, and are you currently? Did I see that you're on uh, the board at SMU now? I'm not. You're not, I'm not okay. on the board of SMU, but uh, I chose SMU Law School. I got waitlisted at Harvard Law School, so I didn't quite get into Harvard. And I was disappointed because at that point in my life, I did want to go to an Ivy League school, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because we didn't have to, we had young children and we didn't have to deal with with Boston winners. And I loved SMU for law school. It was great. I I was head of the law reviews at SMU and did okay academically. And um, it turned out to be a real blessing. We had a nice three years there. And um, I, I went to law school and practiced law for two years because my father was a lawyer and his father before him was a lawyer, and they were the two most honorable men I knew. They just were really high-integrity people. And my grandfather, George C., was actually a prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials, where they yeah. prosecuted all the Nazi war criminals, including Hermann Goering and others of great note. And he was sal- uh, salutatorian of UT Law School and Phi Beta Kappa and just a wonderful guy. So I thought that's where I needed to head because I didn't know what the heck else to do. And I practiced law for two years and went, this is for the birds. i got to find something else to do. I, f- I figured out all my genetics were from my mother's people who are all <laughs> entrepreneurs and business people. So then, uh, so then you, I, I, you're now the chairman of Annadale Capital, but, but it's, it's, uh, it's been a road to, 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 this, to this point. What, uh, what led you to get involved in finance and investment? Well, it's a windy road at the very best. I think you could look at it as anybody who's seen the movie Rat Race at the road that Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg gets sent on by uh, someone she insults and it goes off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> anybody who thinks they're going to chart their path in life and know exactly where they're going, they're going get, to get humbled at some point. Because I started life after UT working for the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, Lawrence Eagleburger, when he was Deputy Secretary under James Baker. I did that for a year thinking I was going to be there four years, and I um, fell in love and got engaged and thought that uh, I did not need to start married married life working 75 hours a week uh, and never being home. So I, I resigned from that job, went back to law school, practiced law for two years, really didn't like it, was desperate to get out, didn't know what the heck else to do to support my family, so I thought I'll go get an MBA and have two years to think about it. At the end of the period uh, of the MBA, still didn't know what to do. I had been trying to find some partners and buy a business, and all the deals I saw were terrible because I was last on the list to look at deals. And finally, my accountant had seen my investment performance um, for the past decade before then, and I had done really well. And he said, I'll refer you clients if you start a money management firm. And I, I went, I don't know what else to do, and that sounds great. So um, I started Annandale um, Capital from scratch in 1998, 21 years ago, with $50,000 and $17 million in commitments. So thank God I was break-even from day one. But I thought, I'm 31 years old. What a great guy I am. Everybody's going to hire me day one. And it was delusional, arrogant, and stupid. <laughs> 
Sometimes it's nice to be young and dumb when you're starting a business because you don't realize how difficult it's going to turn out to be. And it's been a long, challenging, humbling road. So what were some of the things you did at the very beginning and what are some of the things Annandale Capital does today? So when we started out, we just did stocks and bonds. We were kind of a Warren Buffett style investment shop and we picked U.S. domestic securities. We tried to do it on a very tax-efficient basis and be long-term investors, and then we bought investment-grade bonds. And then in 2005, after seven years, and we had basically turned $17 million into roughly about $100 million in assets under management, um, we decided that uh, stocks and bonds in the U.S., lots of people did that. It was kind of a commodity service, and that we needed to expand into global stocks, global bonds, and by global stocks, I mean international development markets, emerging markets, the whole spectrum, private equity of all shapes and forms, hedge funds, venture capital, oil and gas, especially oil and gas minerals, real estate, and cash management, and offer a David Swenson-style Yale Endowment model investment platform for each client. So you give every client a customized investment portfolio that suits what they want, at no conflict. So basically, you're you're putting what's in their account that needs to be in their in in their account. You have no incentive to place them in any investment other than it's for their best interests. So at Annandale, we're fiduciaries. We have a we have a moral, legal, ethical obligation to put our clients' interests ahead of our own interests. And what kind of clients typically come to you? It's all over the map. We get families, we get individuals, we get retirees, we get divorcees, we get widows, we get widowers, we get young entrepreneurs who sold their businesses, we get kids' trust, we get small to mid-sized institutions, including foundations and pension funds and things of that sort. So if our kind of goal is to serve people that we really admire and respect and are high-integrity people and I've been blessed that our clients all fit that kind of profile. And back to the theme of entrepreneurship, to get to where we've been today has been really a lot of grueling work and effort. I remember the 2000 to 2002 market where the market went down 45 percent and the Nasdaq went down 60 percent. At the end of that period, with nobody hiring me, being my early 30s and everybody scared to death, I kind of went, how long am I going to be able to keep the lights on with this? And then... 2007 to 2009, when we shifted our business model, we raised a ton of equity capital. And for several years, we were losing well over half a million dollars a year because we had so much overhead. We had a just army of MBAs and CFAs, which is a high finance designation, and PhDs who were doing all this complicated analysis. And I remember waking up in Jackson, Mississippi in fall 08 and the market was going to drop 900 points that mm-hmm. day. And I think it was eight or nine more days of that level of drop, and the Dow Jones Industrials would be at zero, oh, <laughs> which wow. obviously was never going to happen. But just shows how extreme that time period was. And I was I was just thinking to myself, at 6.30 a.m., I was out there to see clients who it was going to be unpleasant to talk about the market going down that much. And I went, how am I going to keep the lights on and yeah. keep all these people – employed and paid so they can um, feed their families and have a roof over their heads. So uh, everybody looks at entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley and all these unicorns coming public and goes, wow, how glamorous and elegant and um, 
attractive. And the reality is entrepreneurship is really grueling and hard work. And you have to be focused, committed, determined, and you have to persevere when things aren't working. Yeah, I remember during that time, uh, there was a lot of people and, and some people because of that time still kind of nervous about their retirement plans, their 401ks should uh, what should I be doing with my with my stocks? You know things like that. And of course, you have pl- times in history, right, where there's there there's uh, sort of runs on the market because people are pulling everybody. It's a panic, right? All these panics. So it's just another panic, and you're right in the middle of that business. It's it's your it's your livelihood as well. Your customers, all your clients, uh, thinking about those things. Well, um, I know that now I've seen you. Um, you 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 sometimes are. Uh, asked to come on uh, programs as commentator. Was it uh, CNBC or uh, where have you been uh, that, that you're, you have been sought out now as a commentator on financial um, uh, kind of commentary for, for people across the nation? Yeah, that's been really fun. I, I've got a big mouth and I like to talk and hopefully somebody thinks what I have to say is somewhat interesting. So it's been fun to do that. I've gone on Fox Business and MSNBC and Larry King had me on his show. And for somebody who grew up watching Larry King grill Ross Perot when he was running for president, that was kind of fun to get to visit with Larry. And I do some print media too. So it's, it's fun to be able to throw your opinions out there and hopefully help people along the way. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I also know, uh, George, that you're the co-founder of Legacy, uh, a national fellowship of business and civic leaders committed to policy, philanthropy, and political engagement. Uh, what does Legacy do? And um, what, why is it important to you? Well, that kind of goes back to the theme of entrepreneurship. You know, people don't have to be just entrepreneurs in their business life. And I, I'd go back to to young people out there or people who are entrepreneurs and encouraging them about starting stuff from scratch. You know, my company started with almost no assets. And today we advise on around $3 billion U.S. And we have discretion, which means we make all the investment decisions on roughly three quarters of a billion dollars. So we've grown into quite a significant business. And I applied that same kind of um, too young and dumb to quit mentality to nonprofit work. And in the political realm, legacy was what we called, uh, and it's not officially affiliated with YPO, Young Presidents Organization, but we had a lot of YPO members in it. And we called it faith-based YPO for politics. And we tried to get young people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who wanted to serve their country um, by electing great people to office and helping those people, uh, because they're patriotic, to be involved in Senate, U.S. Senate politics and presidential politics in a very strategic way. And along the way, we met almost every presidential candidate for over a decade and many of the great Senate uh, candidates. And it was roughly a fellowship of 200 families all around the country that were mainly civic business and philanthropic leaders very strategically getting involved in politics in short sprints of time and then then returning to their homes. And that was very satisfactory. And two other things we've started from scratch are the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin, which is a national security do tank, encouraging young people to get their undergraduate, graduate, uh, doctorate or postdoctorate educational in place and go serve their country in national security positions or teach the subject at various universities, and we built that from scratch. It's now six years long, and it's a, an internationally acclaimed institution. And then I got asked to be chairman of the Texas-Israel Chamber of Commerce, which is now called the Texas-Israel Alliance, two and a half years ago, and it was almost defunct. It really wasn't that functional just because it had had a rough five years, and we've completely rebuilt it from the ground up, and it's a very dynamic, compelling organization that tries to get business and commerce increased between the state of Texas and the country of Israel. 
Well, that's great. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I just went on my first trip to Israel in August. It was a, a wonderful experience. I can't stop talking about it to a lot of people. Um, just uh, you know, place I always wanted to go, top of my list. So it's funny now. I, you know, I travel a lot. I travel for fun. I travel for work. And sometimes, you know, just recently, a few weeks ago, someone was saying, so, Francisco, what's the top place in the world you want to go? And I go, you know, it's been a hard question to answer now that I've been to Israel because it was always Israel. Um, and I really uh, – so, you know. <laughs> well, you I, checked the box. I did. I checked, I checked the box. checked. Yeah. But one of the things I noticed in uh, Israel, I mean, we think of, you know, um, you know, you know, we know Israel is, 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 is home of the Holy Land, you know, whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim. I mean, it's a very – uh, you know, it's the center place of the world. I mean, Jerusalem particularly, but but all the areas. Um, so we think of it in that way. But then you go over to a place like Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv is just booming. I mean, I was so impressed. Uh, it kind of, to me, the way I, de- I have described it to people when I've come back is, especially growing up in South Florida, I said it's like Miami Beach meets Silicon Valley or something. <laughs> uh, I just, I can't, I mean, it's, I mean, just skyscrapers, uh, there are new buildings going up all over the place. Um, and, you know, in my memory growing up during the Persian Gulf War and all that, you know, Tel Aviv was a place where Scud missiles were being fired at. And, and now, you know, it's pretty protected overall um, and, uh, and just booming, beautiful beaches right on the Mediterranean, um, but a lot of entrepreneurship. And I haven't read the book yet, Startup Nation. Uh, I need to read it. Um, but it's a lot about the entrepreneur uh, activity going on in Israel. So uh, back to that, you know, you're now the head of the Texas-Israel Alliance. And uh, tell me a little more about what the role is for you, especially as the Texan, right, the Texas-Israel Alliance, and how are you working with entrepreneurs or business people in Israel, but also how does that help to benefit uh, people in Texas? Great question, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a linear answer in that um, the first time I went to Israel was 1985. Uh, For better or for worse, faith is very important to me, and my parents offered to give me a high school graduation trip, and I picked Israel, which was a little uh, probably too ambitious for most families. But luckily, my mother swallowed hard and said, okay, we'll go to Israel. And we went over there, and I had all these aspirations to see the Holy Land and see all the great religious sites and the group we went on. One guy bought a whole case of beer with him on the bus, and a lot of the ladies on the trip were chain-smoking when they got off every <laughs> set. So I would say anybody who goes to Israel, don't have your expectations too high. Keep your expectations low, and you'll have a wonderful time because some of it will exceed your expectations, and some of it will be below your expectations. And you mentioned the Persian Gulf War, and one personal contact with that is my boss, Larry Eagleburger, who at the time was the Deputy Secretary of State, which is number two in the State Department, President Bush sent him to to Tel Aviv to sit with the prime minister and the foreign minister and the defense minister and other Knesset members in their legislature to encourage them to not retaliate when um, Iraq and other Arab countries threw Scud missiles at them. And they never did. They used Patriot missile batteries to knock down those missiles. And my boss said it was the, it was his favorite moment in his whole career because it was so successful and he got to interact with a whole lot of Israeli leaders that he really respected. When I first went in 1985, the Israel per capita GDP was $7,000 per person. Wow. It was a third world country, literally. I mean, it was an emerging market. It was it was dusty, lots of beggars, um, lots of poverty. When I went back for the second time in 2009, uh, the per capita GDP was $20,000 a person. So it had tripled in 25 years, which is pretty good growth. Well, fast forward to 2019, when I recently went leading a trade mission over there, 
and per capita GDP is forty-two thousand wow. dollars per person. So it is more than it's more than doubled in a decade. So Israel's economic advancement really is miraculous. It is a real testimony to the Israeli people, and it's hyper impressive. And to your point, what used to be a third world country now looks like Singapore or Hong Kong and Tel Aviv. There's skyscrapers everywhere. There's development everywhere, and I think the key pivot in that that most people haven't recognized is that when Israel was founded in 1948, most of the Jews that resettled the Holy Land were Eastern European Jews, and they were all in socialist countries. Right. So they were they were used to socialism. And I'm going to harken back to America and how great America is because they formed these kibbutzes, these collective farming operations that were very combined resources, and let's all share together, and let's all be equal. Well, Israel started drifting away from socialism in the last 20 years and fully embraced capitalism. And when they did that, and the life sciences industry and the agricultural industry and the technology industry and the energy industry, they've created so much value and it's just exploded. And the quality of life for all the Israelis has gone through the roof. And they're a glaring illustration of how capitalism, with all its flaws, is a far superior system in creating high quality of life for all its citizens than socialism is. And as a Texan, in the Texas-Israel Alliance, it's really fun for me because our board before I showed up was probably 90 95% Jewish, and they really needed a Gentile to balance things <laughs> out a little bit. And I've recruited a few more Gentiles and because it, it can't be all about Israel, as great as Israel is. There's a lot of charities um, and a lot of organizations, whether it's political or religious, where the emphasis is all on Israel. And this wouldn't really function well for Texas if all we were doing was benefiting Israel. So I, my mandate was that as a Texan as, and as a patriotic Texan who is, views Israel as a critical ally but understands also that it is a very secular country and very focused on Israeli self-interest, that Texans have to benefit exactly as Israelis do, 50-50, mm-hmm. or this isn't worth doing. Sure. So we're laser-focused on Texas companies investing in Israel, but Israeli companies investing in Texas and bringing jobs to Texas as well. And Israel would be nuts not to be here. We're the 10th largest economy in the whole world. Yeah. So it's interesting. I have seen uh, leaders of my state, Florida, I've seen leaders of other states, Texas, uh, reaching out and having partnerships with Israel. Um, so is part of that um, because of the uh, religious uh, interest in Israel uh, from folks like you and I who have faith interest in, in going there? Is it uh, strategic um, militarily um, in terms of having a strategic military partner in the Middle East? Um, or is it uh, economic because Israel's just grown so much economically that we want to do business? Or is, it, or is it some slice of all of those? It's a slice of all of them, and I think you ranked them in order. I think the religious aspect is why so many Americans are so pro-Israel, mainly, ironically, mainly evangelical and fundamentalist Christians, because if you look at the Jewish population in the U.S., most of it is extremely liberal. They're not fans of Bibi Netanyahu or conservative Israeli politics. They tend to be quite progressive and vote for Democrats. So they're less interested in Israel today than they used to be in the past. They're more interested in progressive U.S. politics that favor Jewish uh, progressive interests that are more uh, advanced. And I would put commerce um, third, a distant third, And I would argue from a U.S. standpoint that actually that's the most important piece because that's the one that benefits the most people in the most tangible ways. So to have an ability to focus on that, even being a person of faith and ignoring some of the 
more emotional issues, whether it's faith or politics, that aren't so constructive all the time has been very refreshing. And if you look at leading GDP between Israel and Texas states, New York's number one was $6 billion per year, which you kind of expect because there's so many Jewish roots in New York and that it's closer to Israel and they've had more more decades to do business together. California's second with $3 billion, mainly because of Silicon Valley and all the technology back and forth. Texas is third, but a distant third at $1 billion per year in economic uh, back and forth. No other states even in shouting distance. Texas ought to be second or first eventually. We have so much more in common with Israel uh, economically. Uh, we're the most capitalistic state among those three. We're the most dynamic growing state, with your state being a very close second. <laughs> and uh, so I'm very encouraged about the future there. And I would also say that being involved with Israel, which is a very strategic ally, is great for the Clements Center um, for National Security at UT Austin, which is very near and dear to my heart because I'm the chairman of the board. It's named after my grandfather. Um, University of Texas at Austin is is one of the preeminent liberal state universities in the country. It's, it's a top 10, maybe top five. And the Clements Center is not partisan, but it's conservative, patriotic, strong national security policy. And having an Israeli element to what I do helps that because Israel, you could probably count on one hand the number of allies most important around the world from a national security perspective, and Israel is one of them. And one of our professors at the Clement Center at UT Austin was CIA station chief in Tel Aviv for five years and runs our counterterrorism educational operation at UT. So, Well, that's great. So um, that one billion back and forth between uh, Texas and Israel, so that's that's sort of all over the board. Uh, how much how much uh, uh, is coming sort of capital coming into Israel or into Texas of that one billion? Yeah, it's it's fairly balanced. It's probably more towards Israel. Uh, AT and T has a one thousand plus employee uh, foundry operation there. Dell EMC has well over a thousand employees over there. Intel has tons of employees there. Um, Checkpoint Software has large offices in Texas as do uh, Elbit Systems, which is a defense manufacturer. So there's a lot of back and forth, and the, the industries are, are very diverse, which you wouldn't really expect. There's a major energy footprint in Israel. Noble Energy is the firm out of Houston, Texas, that found the Leviathan gas field mm. that gave Israel uh, uh, energy independence. I don't think most people are aware because they say the big God's big joke on the Jews is that Israel was the only co- country in the Middle East that didn't have any fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, they found out less than a decade ago that they had a huge pool of natural gas offshore. So they actually do have a lot of natural gas, and Noble's developed that. And then um, there's a there's a big defense component, Lockheed, Elbit Systems, uh, Northrop Grumman, co- companies like that, because Israel needs our fighter planes and our, our, our missile technology and things of that sort. There's life sciences. There's a partnership between UT Southwestern Medical Center and Rabin Hospital in Israel to develop uh, cutting-edge medical technology. There's agriculture because Texas can really benefit from Israel's water technology and the agricultural space. So there's a lot of touch points. Good, good. Well, you noted earlier that um, your other grandfather, it was it George C., mm-hmm. uh, was involved in prosecuting uh, some of the Nazi war criminals uh, in Germany uh, following World War II at the Nuremberg trials. Uh, so what was his, and so his name was George C. So what was his role, uh, or wh- where was he before that? How did he get appointed to that? And then how did, 
How does that make you feel now that you're involved with the Texas Israeli Chamber? Well, it's funny because, you know, we, we are so light on history in our country these days that I mentioned the Nuremberg trials, and unless someone's a lawyer or they're old, <laughs> most people have kind of a blank expression on their face. But there was a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg that Spencer Tracy starred in, and it was a really powerful climactic moment in World War II, and there were only seven U.S. people on the prosecution team, and he was one of the seven. And Justice Jackson, who was a Supreme Court justice, had headed the whole team. And my grandfather was really, really bright. He was valedictorian at the leading high school here, in private high school here in town, Phi Beta Kappa at UT, number two at UT Law School class. And he was a lieutenant colonel in the, um, in the JAG, uh, in the Army. And then he was transferred to the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, and then he was asked to be on this prosecution team. So I think you can't draw any conclusion but that he really impressed somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are only seven people on it. And he was not only really bright, he was also a uh, uh, a really fine person. And so I think they wanted someone of his integrity on that prosecution team. And to have a grandfather who did that, it's just a wonderful legacy. And I mentioned that he, he was a prosecutor at Nuremberg in Israel, and they all just light up like a Christmas tree. You know, it gives yeah. me a whole lot of credibility. It helps <laughs> you on the on the Texas-Israeli uh, alliance, right? It does, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Well, good. Well, uh, George, this has really been a fantastic interview. I just have a couple uh, last questions for you. Um, one, uh, what kind of well, – first of all, this is a question I've been asking people on probably the last 15, 20 episodes I've had. Last year I read a book by Ben Sass, uh, and in the book – uh, the book uh, is called uh, The Vanishing American Adult. It's a Vanishing American Adult, and it's less about politics, more about culture. But one of the things he likes to ask people when he meets them, he says, uh, to learn a little more about them is, what was your first job? Um, and so I thought that would be a great question to ask people on this podcast, being that we have a lot of entrepreneurs. So what was your first job? I know you've mentioned some of those jobs along the way, but can you remember maybe something uh, that first got you started in the market or, or when you were a kid? My first job was travel aid for my grandfather you know, on his last campaign for governor. And all in high school, I was playing baseball all summer, lifting weights all the time, getting ready for the football season. So I, I focused more on that than working. Well, we so, know, uh, yeah, being an athlete sometimes is a job <laughs> because yeah, it's a lot of work. It is. Yeah. So that was the first one. Um, working for my church as a high school intern was the second one. And then working for Lincoln Property Company at the depth of the real estate depression in the late 80s in Texas was the third one, which was a very big learning experience. And then I started work for the State Department right out of college. I wanted to come back briefly, because you focus on entrepreneurship, to try to encourage everybody out there who's listening who wants to start a business or is actively involved in starting a business. I nearly quit twice building my company and because it was so hard and because things looked so grim. Uh, the business I'm in is is really volatile and uh, mercurial, and uh, it takes a lot of stamina. And I I'm just could not be more thrilled today that I pressed on and persevered because I would have given up on something that's now a $3 billion under advisory uh, global investment company. And I, I run into work every morning. I love what I do so much. And I never had any idea this is what I would be doing. So... I hope some people will hear that and be encouraged that to really when you believe in what you're doing and it's worthwhile and you're serving other people, um, persevere, keep going and keep after it. And I would also say it's really fun to be an entrepreneur in the philanthropic area. What we've built at the Clements Center in terms of encouraging over the next several decades, hundreds if not thousands of people to go serve their country by teaching national security at universities with a deep knowledge of history and grand strategy, 
or working for the military, uh, serving in the military, or being a civilian person at the Department of Defense, or being a diplomat in the State Department, or a spook for the CIA, any way you can serve your country, that's going to be really satisfying to see all these outstanding young patriotic Americans go serve America. And this, the Clement Center didn't exist six years ago. And one last point I'd make is an ad is, is to be an advocate for how we do business, which is I'm an independent investor and investment advisor regulated by the SEC and the government. So there's strong controls over our integrity and how we conduct our business. And we have no conflicts of interest, if at all possible, to do that. We only do what's best for our clients, and we act as fiduciaries. And I think that's the only way to invest. Investing is hard enough without somebody having an incentive to sell you something because they get the highest fee for selling it. And we don't do any of that stuff. And I would encourage people out there, if you're going to invest, do it in as fair, low-cost, and transparent a way as you possibly can so you know you're getting the best outcome. Well, that's great. And I really also appreciate your um, interest and in, in encouraging philanthropy. And I know you, uh, so the Clement Center, coming back to that, it didn't exist six years ago. Um, what, what kind of philanthropic effort led to that? Is it also supported by, you know, tuition, taxpayer dollars, other things, but uh, what role did philanthropy play in that? Well, that's a great question. And it's a great question you brought up Ben Sass because Ben Sass got his PhD in history at Yale and the, my executive director at the Clements Center, who I'm his board chair, is a gentleman named Dr. Will Inboden, who also got his Ph.D. in history at Yale. Same class as Ben. Mm. And they're just about best friends. They're very, very close friends. So Will is an uh, outstanding American. He went to Stanford, back to Ivy League schools, got his master's in Yale and his Ph.D. at Yale. He's from Arizona. And he went to work for the government because he wanted to serve his country. He kind of epitomizes what the Clement Center is trying to do. And he worked at the State Department when Connie Rice was Secretary of State. And then he was the policy planning director at the National Security Council when Steve Hadley was National Security Advisor to President Bush 43. After that, Will moved to London to be the conservative head of the Legatum Institute, which is a free enterprise pro-capitalism think tank in London. And after several years there, he was being recruited by the University of Texas to be a professor there. And in, you can't, in the can't-make-it-up category, four couples of us are sitting around the punch bowl, Guy Ritchie's pub in Mayfair in London that used to, he used to be married to Madonna, and he's directed Sherlock Holmes and all these other big movies. And Will turns to me and says, I, they're trying to get me to go to Austin to be a professor at UT, but it's such a liberal place. I don't think I'm going to fit in because Will's an arch-conservative. And I said, oh, you got to go. You'd add balance there, and that's why they're recruiting you. They know that you would help them balance. And so Will went as a professor, and two years later, my grandfather passed away. And Will, being a great friend and fine person, called me to give me condolences on that. And then he called me back two months later and said, you know, I've been reading up on your grandfather, and the career he had at the Defense Department is extraordinary and kind of unprecedented there, and nobody knows about it. And I go, well, I'm glad somebody else figured that out. <laughs> and then he called me back a couple of weeks later and said, we ought to start a pro-America, patriotic, conservative center at UT called the Clement Center to try to teach young people grand strategy and history and get them to go serve their country. And I go, I love this idea. <laughs> so actually, I didn't have the idea, but I was one of the big executors of making it happen. And my family was real skeptical because people were hitting our family up for charitable donations after my grandfather died. And the president of the University of Texas and the head of the, the Strauss Center for International Law and Diplomacy and Dr. Inboden flew to Dallas to present to us. And 
it was so compelling. They went over the rest of my family and we launched it right then. And it's been a rocket ship straight up journey ever since. Well, great. Well, that's fantastic. And it's, it's a, it's, it's also a way you know, you're promoting the legacy of, of your grandfather, but also, um, what he meant to this state and to this country. And I think that's great. And, uh, we are really appreciate hearing your entrepreneurial story and what you're doing, uh, both on the, as an entrepreneur and in the philanthropic realm and dedicating your time and services and as, you know, all the different things you're involved with. So thank you, George C., for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. If you have any last words, I'll I'll go ahead and give them to you. Well, thanks, Francisco. It's been great to be on here. I I just can't encourage young people enough to get into entrepreneurship and create wonderful things for the future. And I would just say on philanthropy, there's nothing worse than someone who talks about philanthropy. So I don't want to brag about it. You want to keep low-key about it. And people should only give back and give money away if they get joy from doing it and they they give generously and freely and willingly. There, there's nothing worse than a, than a grumpy giver. So I hope all of you all will make lots of money and joyfully give some of it back to, to make America a better place. Well, thank you. I, I, I agree with all of that. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much, George. Uh, and just a pleasure to have you on the Agents of Innovation podcast today. Honor to be here. So wrap me in a blanket Send me down the river First you'll see good tidings Bad news I'll deliver Started taking all my thoughts And turning them to song But all that I can think about sometimes Is what I do that's wrong what do I do so wrong? But I remember that I'm alive. And I remember that I'm alive. me in a blanket Send me to the ocean With every life a flame is born Sometimes I feel frozen And all I want to sing about Is how I'm so in love All that I can think about sometimes Is how can someone trust me? How can someone trust me? But I remember That I'm alive
I remember 